Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1? <clears throat> yes, Genesis chapter 1. And I want to begin by reading verses 1 through 3. And if you don't mind, would you stand with me as we read this passage together? Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> the text reads as follows. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Let's pray. Father, I ask as we focus this morning on the importance of your word in our life that your Holy Spirit would teach and instruct us in your ways. That God, in the end of the day, that um, any man who can be easily convinced is probably just as easily unconvinced. Lord, we don't need convincing, we need conviction. Uh, we need to believe deep in our hearts that your word is literally your word, that we might not only take it seriously, but develop an appetite for your truth. We pray for your grace in this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you've been with us in this series, so far you've seen that we've looked at three aspects of how God relates to mankind. Uh, we talked about God, first of all, as the creator, the architect of all things, but all, not only the architect and designer, but the builder, the one who sustains and maintains the universe. Along the lines of what Paul said to the Colossians when he wrote to them, he says, For by him, speaking of Christ, all things were created, things in heaven, things in earth, visible and invisible, all things were created by him, for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So essentially, that's the foundation upon which any knowledge of God or experience of God has to begin, that we need to understand that we live and move and have our very being by His will and purpose and design. That secondly, we talked about Him not only being the creator, but also the ruler of the universe in the sense that He makes and enforces all of the rules that govern everyone and everything. We recognize readily that He has made rules that govern the material universe. I mean, when you parked your car on the way in here today, you had no concern that it was going to float away. Gravity was going to ensure that it was still on the ground, maybe not still in your possession, but still on the ground, and, you know, it, it wasn't going anyplace else. We, we understand that this is a, a law of, of nature that governs all things and is inviolate. It can't be changed. But there's also rules of what we might call the spiritual universe. When, when he says, for example, in Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked. Literally, the word mock there in the original means to turn up the nose and sneer at. People can't dis, just dispatch God as insignificant because he says a man reaps what he sows, that whatever comes out of me will be like seed on the ground that will produce a consequence. And then thirdly, we talked about despite the fact that God has rules and you and I tend to break them with predictable regularity, that there's a rebellion against his rulership and his rules. Uh, we call this thing sinfulness. That nevertheless, he is a gracious God who does not reward us according to what we deserve, but shows us his mercy and his kindness. Which brings us today to the fourth identifying characteristic of God and his relationship with you and me. And that's simply the fact that our God is a communicator. <clears throat> 
He's a communicator. In other words, <clears throat> when we look at the story that we just passage that we just read, he says the, the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And then it says, and God said, let there be light. We kind of read past that and don't stop and think for a moment. Wait a minute. God said something. God is a speaker. He has a voice. He has a language that he communicates in. So that in the first two chapters, 16 different times, he says, God said, God said, God said. We find in the rest of the five books of Moses, 45 times, God said, 91 times in the Old Testament. In other words, this repetition is telling us that God is regularly, consistently, ongoing, speaking into the creative world in which we live and particularly to you and I as part of his creation. And when he spoke, as Francis Schaeffer said in one of his great tr books in his trilogy of arguments for God, he said, he is there and he is not silent. He is there and, and he's not silent. As some people say, well, how do you know? In fact, he says he spoke, when he spoke to us, he spoke with power, as the psalmist said in Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, the starry host, by the breath of his mouth, for he spoke and it came to be, he commanded and it stood firm. Which really brings us to this idea of God being a communicator and God being one who has words that he wants to communicate to us and wants us to respond to. So important is it to God that in Psalm 138, he said the following, you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Above all things, your name and your word. Which really kind of raises a question, how does God actually communicate to you and I? And it's interesting, the Bible says there are really three ways in which God speaks to humanity. The first and most obvious is that he speaks through his creation. In fact, in, in Psalm 19.1, it says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the works of his hand, and day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display his knowledge. Essentially what we have are these sensory capacities of sight, of smell, of taste, of hearing, of touching, and those sensory capacities enable us to interact with the material universe. And as we do so, we come to something rather obvious, something of which Paul would later say, to ignore it leaves you without any excuse before God. That whether we're looking at the most massive quasar, which now they estimate is 4 billion light years across, incomprehensible number, or the most minute quark, which is so small we have no way of actually measuring it, we realize that within this creative universe that you and I exist in, whether in the microcosm or the macrocosm, there is a power and a complexity that goes beyond the ability of the human mind to comprehend. When Darwin argued for the simple cell, he was speaking as a man who had, did not have the capacity to recognize that there is no such thing. That even the minute cell is more complex than the most complex urban center in the world. If you take a city like New York and with all of its roads and lights and wires and sewage and water and, and highways and cars and people and systems and buildings and you put all that together with all of its incredible complexity, it doesn't even begin to come close to the complexity of a single cell. 
And when we look into the universe, it just becomes more expansive and more expansive, so we're just giving it more time. Because one billion years isn't enough, four billion years needs to be added, and we go on and on and on because we can't get our minds around the majesty, majesty. That's why Robert Jastrow, who in his lifetime was a leading astrophysicist in, in the United States and maybe in the entire world, simply said towards the end of his life, after all of his years of research and study, he says, there has to be a God. <laughs> there just has to be a God. It's, it's something that's undeniable. That's why, in fact, Isaac Newton so interestingly said, in the absence of any other proof, the hand alone would convince me of God's existence. The hand alone. He, he, the thumb. He, he just said, if you look at what goes into the operation of this one part of our body, that in itself has such amazing complexity and design perfection that there has to be something of greater intellectual capacity than well, it's kind of humorous when you say it like this, I think, but when you just simply say that the protoplasm thought himself into being. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't mean to be facetious or rude, but I mean, it's, it, it, Jesus said you can't add one cubit to your height, you can't stop your hair from going or growing. You, you, can't, you can't do any of those things, and yet somehow we arrogate to ourselves the idea that we just thunk ourselves into being what we are. I don't, I don't understand. But anyway, but it's why the, the psalmist offered this criticism. He said the only fools, albeit very possibly highly educated fools, say in their heart there is no God. And by calling them fools, he isn't saying that they're stupid idiots. What he's saying is there's folly, there's, there's a folly that men are subject to where even brilliant men can make choices and decisions that are so obviously wrong to even a small child. That's why teaching small children evolution is such an uphill battle because to them, they just look at it and go, that doesn't make sense. We have to condition them to believe that. In fact, Peter would put it very simply where he says, they willfully shut their eyes to the facts. They just, it's determined. Don't just confuse me with facts. But there's a second way in which God speaks to us, and that's through human messengers. We call them prophets, or Scripture does, and what they produced through their inspiration is, is Scripture. We call it special revelation. On one hand, the nature we look at, there's sensory perception, but special revelation is God literally speaking into people's lives. In fact, uh, Hebrews chapter 1 reads this way, in the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times in various ways. Again, 2 Peter 1.19, he says, no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. In other words, they didn't sit down and say, I think I'll write a Bible. For prophecy had never, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In fact, Paul added it to, in writing to Timothy, he said, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. So that God basically says to us, I have chosen to speak into the lives of individuals and speak through those individuals that they might communicate my heart, each with their own personality, with their own stylistic ability, their own vocabulary, their own language. But it becomes an expression of my heart that I want you to grasp. But lastly and thirdly, maybe and clearly most importantly, as the writer of Hebrews would say, in these last days he's spoken to us, by his son. 
whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The sun is the very radiance of God's glory. In other words, if you want to see God in his glory, when Moses said, God, let me see your glory, God became tabernacled in a human flesh and became man and walked among us. And essentially God saying, you want to see what I would look like if I were in your world? It's Jesus. God became the radiance, the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. These three sources of revelation are so obvious again that when Paul wrote to the Romans, he said, you know, to deny them is to leave you without any excuse because, he said, what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. And yet, This plainness that he speaks of is contradicted by what we see in the world around us. In fact, Jesus himself said, he said that there would be people who would be seeing, but they would not see. They would be hearing, but they would not hear, and they certainly wouldn't understand, or literally the term means to gain any insight from what they're observing. Have you had that experience where you're looking at something and you don't know what you're looking at? I remember the first one time when I uh, was in <coughs> St. Petersburg, Russia, and <coughs> had a young man who was uh, being, serving as a translator for our group, and he, um, he uh, wanted to go with us to the Hermitage, the Winter Palace, which is a great art gallery, among other things now. And he was an art student who had sufficient, a significant background in that field. And so even though I had been there about six times previously and just kind of oohed and awed and, and gawked at stuff that I didn't really understand, he began to walk me through the galleries and explain to me why a da Vinci was only this big and why these pictures over here were that big and all the technical things that went into it and showed me all these things, what they were trying to say and communicate in various levels. And I felt like I had never been there before because my understanding had been expanded and I was seeing things that I had been looking at but never really had been able to take in. All of us are like that. We have those experiences where we don't know what we're looking at and suddenly we are enamored by dimensions and depths of things that have gone past our view. So the question really that comes to me is why is it that there are some people who actually can hear the words of the Bible or read the Bible and walk away with little or no understanding? You see, some people use that as an argument of proof against. Well, I read it, I didn't get it, therefore it can't be from God. Not considering the possibility that the problem may actually rest in them. Of course, I'm sorry for meddling. But Jesus answered that question in a lot of ways, but one of the simplest ways was in what was called the parable of the sower. And the parable of the sower really involves three three groups. Basically, you have the the farmer who essentially represents a person who is preaching or sharing the word of God. Uh, He is casting out seed. Mark Luke 8.11 says the seed is the word of God. And then lastly, there are, there's the soil, which is the hearts, the souls of people. In other words, it's this, when we preach the word, he says, like scattering seed, and that seed lands on people's, the soil of people's hearts. And how it responds depends on the condition of the soil. The problem isn't in the one who's proclaiming. The problem isn't in the seed or the word of God. The problem or the difficulty 
The determinant factor is the heart, the disposition of the heart when it hears that message. And why he breaks them into basically four different reactions, four different categories based upon how people react to the word that's preached to them. And I divide them into, you know, uh, alliterations essentially. I have the dull, the discouraged, the distracted, and the doers, okay? So this is the kind of thing we do. But let's talk about the first group I call the dull. These are people we might just simply say are confused, Because it says it's like seed that lands on a pathway. A pathway would have been a place that had been pounded down and hardened to the point where even if the seed was able to sprout, it would be trampled underfoot and would never have a chance to really grow. But what most likely would happen is the birds would see it laying out there and open and would come and snatch it and take it away and it would never get a chance to ever have an impact upon the soil. And what he simply said is, uh, these are people, Matthew 13, 19, he said, this is someone who has no root. They hear the message, not that they're deaf or they can't hear it, but they do not understand it. Because, he says, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. So that when you're talking to someone about Christ or the gospel, you're sharing something out of the Bible, and somebody just looks at you and then walks away, you have to understand that even though they hear it, it's not registering with them in any measurable way. It has no meaningful impact upon them. How many of us grew up sitting in church services or listening to Billy Graham on TV or some other expression of gospel message and sat there and listened to it and it really had no lingering effect upon our life? It was water off the proverbial duck's back. And essentially the way Paul described it, he says, such people, the, the God of this age, which is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so they cannot see. They cannot see even though it's right in front of them. And sometimes we just get really frustrated with people because they don't respond as we think they should. But we have to understand there is an impenetrable barrier between them and God. That his message is not able to penetrate that for various reasons, whether it's by actions on their own part or circumstances that pass through their lives. So that when we want to get past that, what we have to do is really pray that God would open their eyes, open their hearts, and that he would bind the power of the enemy which keeps them blinded. Not just simply write them off as being the way they are and go on with life. It's interesting to me. It's almost like there has to be a certain desperation that comes into our lives before we become open to hearing what God has to say. Isn't that true? I was thinking about how that if a guy has, if you have lots of money and you feel hungry and you're walking to the store and suddenly you look down and you see a $5 bill on the ground or a $1 bill on the ground, you might say, it's not worth the the weight on my back to reach over and pick it up. I'm certainly not going to bother and we walk on by. But if you are someone who is hungry and you have no money, you have no pride in dropping to your knees and scrabbling that up as quickly as you can. There's a certain sense of necessity, there's a certain sense of desperation that God is in the business of bringing every one of us to. There is this crushing process that makes His Word more precious. And I would say to, this, to you, those of you who know Jesus, have you not had that experience when you, even if you have a daily discipline of reading the Bible, it's more of a tick list issue than something that you really are trying to track? 
And then all of a sudden, as you're going through a period of time where great difficulty and you really want to hear from God, suddenly the Bible comes alive and begins to pop every time you read it. What has changed? Well, Jesus said, blessed are those who, are hung- who hunger after righteousness, for they will be filled. What changes is an appetite. We suddenly have an appetite to hear from God. And part of hearing from God is wanting to hear from God. That's part of hearing from God. God does not force feed us. He just waits until we get hungry enough to want to hear from Him. Then there's a second group of people I call the discouraged. These are people who are convinced of the truth of the message, but they've just never been converted to it. What he says is they're like seed that falls on a rock and on rocky places. And the man who hears the word at once receives it with joy. But when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. Essentially, you look at what the word of God says, what God expects or requires of you. And you just simply say the price is too high. I'm not interested in in amending my life or changing things enough to to follow that to its obvious conclusion. And therefore, I just resist it. Or there is thirdly the person I call the distracted. They have been converted, but they're not necessarily committed. This is seed. The soil is good. The the seed enters into it. It begins to to develop roots and to grow. But it says it fell amongst the thorns of the man who hears the word. But the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. What this produces is what I refer to as disciples who are mildly discipled. Not radically discipled. We're mildly discipled. We we know what the Bible says. We know it's absolutely the truth. But we have other things that we're trying to deal with at the same time. As my wife often points out, there is no but with God. Because we're having a conversation with somebody and they're saying, yeah, yeah, I know what the Bible says, but... And she said... There's no but with God. It's true or not. You either believe it or you don't. It's, but we try to create this, this middle mild zone of, well, I know what the Bible says, but I can't really afford that right now. I know what the Bible says, but that would radically affect my life. I know what the Bible says, but, and suddenly the cares, the affairs, the worlds, and even adds in Luke gospel, he adds this phrase, the desire for other things. And so that we're looking right at the Word of God, and you know what we're doing? We're no longer taking it at face value. We begin to nuance it subtly so that we get it to fit more comfortably into our skinny jeans. So, because we don't want to just take it at face value. I mean, that's radical. And the end result is we may be converted, we may have a degree of discipleship, but it's a mild discipleship. It's not offensive. It's not radical. It it doesn't create any stir or complexity. Where Jesus wants us to be is in this fourth category of being the doers. Then I and I made this comment, they are continual, not continuous. And I'll explain that in a moment. He says the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. And he produces a crop yielding 160, 30 times what was sown. The word understand there literally means that he grasps its significance. He has insight. He sees into it, not just on the surface. And he says that's the one who becomes a reproducer in their life. 
In those times, a farmer who could produce five, six times what he had planted was successful because that meant he had enough food to survive the winter and then replant next year. But when he talks about 60, 100, 1,000 fold, well, that's not so amazing to us in our agricultural technocracy, but in their world, that was beyond anything you could imagine. And what Jesus was trying to say to them is, you have no idea the limitlessness of God's power in your life, what he can do through you if you just simply take my word seriously. Take my word seriously. One of the things that struck me was going, in, going to India and seeing miracles. I mean, we're, we're not only seeing the demon-possessed who don't try to pretend like they're not, but seeing people literally healed of, of incredible diseases. And they're healed by somebody coming up and laying hands and praying for them, and, and then the disease is gone. I mean, it's very powerful. And I was talking with one of the, one of the missionaries there about it, and his answer was really interesting. He says, well, we, Jesus said that if you pray for the sick, they'll be healed. So we just believe that. So when people are sick, we just pray for them. In other words, we just take it for what it said. We, we don't sit back and say, well, you know, does he heal everybody all the time? And uh, is there a posture? Is there a position? Is there a formula? We begin to theologize about it to the point where it becomes empty and powerless. Because if no other reason is we just don't want to look stupid. I guess my question for you at this point is simply this. Where are you in this parable? Where do you fit? Where do you fit? Let me give you some statistics that may help you sort that out. Barna Research Group, which is you know, becoming almost legend for their work on analyzing uh, the view of Christians and non-Christians about the church and the Bible and the gospel and Jesus and so forth, have recently come out with a new research study. One of the things they found is that 88% of Americans say they own a Bible. On average, every American has 4.4 Bibles in their home. So it's, you know, when many times we think about, well, we need to get the Bible into people's hands. Uh, mission accomplished. <laughs> they've got it. If they don't have it in their hand, they've got it on their iPad or their phone. So, I mean, 80%, 88% of us have Bibles. 80% of Americans believe that the Bible is sacred. Does that surprise you? They believe it. Now, of course, understand it's how you define the word sacred, okay? But they believe it's, it's a sacred. They believe it's, it's God's Word. And a third of Americans, 33% of us, believe that America's moral decline is directly related to the fact that we don't read the Bible anymore. But then again, only 20% of us actually do read the Bible with anything that's regularity, regu with regularity. What makes it worse is only 9% of us actually believe that it should be taken literally. In other words, the vast majority of professing Christians look at the Bible and say, well, you can't do everything it says. You, you can't just submit to it completely. You have to basically recognize that we live in a modern times and therefore that changes what the Bible says. Now, I would agree to some point that many times we don't understand how to interpret it correctly, and we uh, draw some simple conclusions. If it doesn't make sense, it's probably because the way we're looking at it doesn't make sense. But those are few and far between, those kind of issues. The real heart of the issue is very clear, and that's what people don't want to take seriously. So that when Jesus says things like in Matthew 16, 24, he says, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. 
Because he who seeks his life will lose it, but he who seeks to lose his life for my sake and the gospel will find it. And right away, your brain starts going, well, I mean, uh, what exactly does that mean for me? And that's a good question to ask, but somehow our natural tendency is to try to define that down to a place where it really doesn't mean anything at all. We want to get, we want to nuance it until it becomes comfortable and doesn't pinch us in any regards. And that's part of the issue I want to, I'll talk about in a moment is the need for us to wrestle with those things. Because there tends to be in our culture a huge gap between what we profess and what we actually believe. See, when I first came to Christ, when I first became a follower of Jesus, I was told the following. Basically, this book will keep you from sin and sin will keep you from this book. Now, it's based upon something that David said in Psalm 119, uh, much more elegantly he wrote it. He says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. Then he says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. This becomes the real challenge because you can't respond to something that you don't know. And we live in an interesting era. You know, they say it takes 18,000 hours in order for you to become an expert at anything. You have to do something for 18,000 hours. You want to be a biblical expert? Read the Bible for 18,000 years, about 10 hours, about 10 years, and, you know, by a normal schedule, and you will become, have a, a level of expertise. Interestingly, when we talk about our kids, they will watch about that much TV between the age of 5 and 18. They're, so that what we find is we have a generation of young people who are experts in television, they're experts in, in computers and computer games and all sorts of forms of technology. I'm not saying that's all bad. I love stuff. I want an iPhone and an iWatch. But I'm not, I'm not saying these are bad things. But the whole point is we look at the amount of time that we dedicate into those things. Why? Because we believe they're important and essential to our happiness and our future well-being. That's why. And yet the Scripture says, but this is where the issues of life are really resolved. These are where the deep answers come. And so at the end of the day, we can debate about quality time and quantity time and all that sort of stuff, but you just have to read it to know it. And that's why I would simply say that um, there are three things that can enable us to be better at hearing God in our life. How many times have I had people saying, I just want to hear what God wants for me. And, and I love the one where they say, well, you just, can you give me a passage or a place I can read that would help me deal with what I'm going through? And I have the same answer. I know the perfect passage. It's found somewhere between Genesis and Revelation. Start reading it and you'll come across it sooner or later. And I say that not just to be, you know, silly or, or whatever, however you want to describe what I just did. I, I say it because it's what I've done and I've found to be true. It's tried and proved in my own life. I, I've dedicated my life to that discipline, that reading in Genesis to Revelation and starting again. I, I tend to teach that way, except for certain instances like this where I backslide into a series. But, you know, it's because I really know that that works. And as I'm reading it, God speaks to me from passages that I never would have imagined. And every time you read it, it's like he says his mercies are new every morning. Do you ever think about the mercy of God to open your eyes to his word? 
and show you something that you need to see, that that's new every morning if we take advantage of it. As Swindoll once put so well, he says, the problem is you can't pull out what God hasn't first put in. I need to have his word put into me. So there are really three things that, that I think we need to do uh, in, in order to become have a, a better grasp of God's Word, a better grasp of God's will, to hear Him speak more clearly into our life. And I, I, I describe it, first of all, as opening your head. You see, you can't know it if you don't read it, and you will know it to the degree that you spend time reading it. Now, granted, I know there's lots of Christians who, who really think they're being insightful by arguing about which version of the Bible you should read. And, and there are some that are better than others. Bibles that are put together by committees tend to be better, uh, more accurate, and, and, and better. Some are written for very different reasons, like the message, the living Bible, are, are written in paraphrase forms to make it easier for people to understand. Just understand this, there's never been a false theology in the church that came out of a translation. People who create heresies can do that with any version of the Bible. It takes no work at all. But my issue is, and I've been criticized by it for saying this, but I still am going to say it, I don't care which one you read. Just read the one you got. You know, I mean, it, it makes sense. But if you don't read it, you won't get anything. And I say read it from cover to cover and read it over and over. Genesis to Revelation, Genesis to Revelation, Genesis to Revelation. I mean... It's not, it's not rocket science. But that's why when Paul was writing to Timothy, uh, I love the way the Amplified re renders this, when he says, study and be eager and do your utmost to correctly analyze and accurately handle skillfully the teaching of the word of truth. I mean, this is the focal point. It's making the Bible the most important exercise of your day. It's the thing that becomes foundational to how you function on a day-to-day -day basis. Now I know that some of you ladies are looking at me and saying, I have two preschoolers in my house. I want you to die. <laughs> I, and, and, and let me throw something really wild and crazy in here. There may be a discipline of daddy taking the kids so mom can have quiet time with Jesus and his word. Just a thought. Not trying to impose anything. But secondly, not only do we need to open our heads, we need to open our hearts. And that's that issue of praying for understanding. When David said in Psalm 119, he says, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. We begin to realize that there's kind of levels of understanding of God's Word. You can take a class on the Bible as literature in your local university, and you'll get a lot of data and information about the Bible and so forth, but that is not going to have a life-changing impact necessarily upon you. But when you're sitting there looking at a passage of Scripture and you're saying, God, help me to understand what I've just read. And those are usually those ones you're reading along and suddenly, bloop, that pops up. You have a little dialogue box in the corner of your head and you're going, what the heck? And, you know, at that point he says, God, give me understanding. Speak to me. And God will. God does. In fact, that's why I often say that we need to ruminate or chew on the Word of God. In Psalm 119, again, he says, My eyes stay open through the watches of the night that I may meditate on your Word. The word meditate literally means to chew the cud, to ruminate it. That's what cows do. They ruminate. 
And it's the idea that as they chew on it, they extract more and more nutrition out of it, passing it from stomach to stomach and back again until they're able to extract enough nutrition to produce milks for their babies. And they're just eating green stuff. The point is that God says, when you begin to have that kind of relationship with my word, not based upon academics or any theological high place or ivory tower, but you're just simply with you and God's word saying, God, I want to know what this means to me. I want to know how this speaks to my life. And you ruminate, you give it space. You see, we live in such a time-pressured world where we're racing from thing to thing to thing. And, and there's some of you who aren't here right now because you, there's a 10 o'clock kickoff. And then some of you are here because you have DVR, so don't get self-righteous. Okay? <laughs> but the whole point is that we get so scheduled out in our life that we are running so much from pillar to post that we say, I'm too busy. And so in this fantasy of this ability to multitask, what if all studies about multitasking prove in? You can do a bunch of things poorly at the same time. But if you want to do something well, you have to stop, isolate, and focus that you might do it well. And that's just a simple reality that if I'm going to know it with God, I've got to give it that space in my life where I can begin to Chew on Scripture. Let it begin to extract its nutrition into my life. And with that, you know, there has to be this resistance to the way of the devil. The devil gets terrified every time he sees a Christian open his or her Bible and start reading it. He's terrified of you knowing what it says and, and, and drawing from it truth that can be life-changing. And so he will put everything in your way, every interference, every distraction... There's a reason I turn my phone off, shut my computer down. <laughs> There's a reason I get up early in the morning and, and when there's no noise around, because I just know that the enemy is going to use every opportunity to keep me from being able to just focus. It's a battle that has to be fought, and it has to be fought daily, but it's worth it. It's worth it when you begin to realize that you come to that place in your life where you realize, without this strength, I couldn't go on. That's why David said in another psalm, I desire your word more than my necessary food. <laughs> why did he say that? You know, I, I see few of us who are simply skipping meals. And if we do, we say, I've got to get something in my belly because I can't function. My body needs that fuel, that energy. How much more does your soul need that spiritual nourishment? That we need to open our, 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 our heads, or we need to open our hearts, and we need to open our hands. Because Jesus said this in John 8, 31. He says, if you hold to my teachings, literally, King James reads, continue in my word, you are really my disciples. I said before that there are those who are fruitful because they, uh, they, they, they're continuous, not continual. Those words actually mean something slightly but importantly different. To do something continuously means it's a repeated act. To do something continually means you do it without stopping. And sometimes we think that God's looking for continuousness out of us. When we fall short, then we feel we failed. God says, no, I don't expect you to be perfect. I expect you to drop the ball, but I want you to keep on coming back. 
you know, I have this daily reading discipline in my life that I've been doing for 45 years. And I remember when I, there have been times I thought, I'm going to make sure that I never miss a day. And that usually lasted up to hours. Because suddenly life overwhelms you. But the whole point isn't that, well, I didn't do it at the exact hour that I had marked off, but I'm going to come back to this again, and I'm going to come back to it again. I'm going to make sure that it's part of my life. So that even it means at the end of the day, before I go to bed, I can sit down and say, okay, God, here I am, speak to me. Let me summarize it simply this way. God wants to have a sacred, divine, holy conversation with you. And one of the most clearest ways that He does that is through His Word. But how does that work? That when you sit down, you open your Bible, and you start reading it, your heart reacts to the truth. Not just your head, but your heart begins to react to what you're reading. And as your heart reacts, God registers your response. He looks at how you respond to His truth. Do reject it? If you reject it, He says, I'll reject you. If I resist it, then He will begin to feel distant in your life, not close. If you wrestle with it, He'll wrestle back. And He'll engage in a wrestling, just like Jacob wrestled with the angel until finally he was broken and the angel was able to redefine who he was as a person. We read the book of Job. Job wrestles for 38 chapters, you know. He wrestles with God. In the end, Job surrenders and suddenly peace comes into his heart. The wrestling is not a problem. Even resisting is not a problem. Just need to understand this, that you do not feel that closeness of His presence when you're resisting Him. And not because He's pushing you away, but by resisting His truth, you're pushing Him away. You're essentially saying, not now. I'm busy. But if I receive it, if I read His truth, and my reaction is to say, your word is truth, and I will embrace it. He will enter into a rejoicing experience with you. He will reward you with the ambience of His presence that will leave your life transformed. And that's the best way I can describe it. I don't, don't know that there are those precious, wonderful moments where I am just sitting with God, and I'm reading His word, and I'm meditating upon it. I'm, I'm chewing it, and I'm, I'm asking God, open my understanding of what I'm reading here. Speak to me from this. And suddenly God begins to minister to me in, in ways that I can't even begin to explain, that my mind begins to, to pop. The synapses are going off crazily, and I feel this wonderful sense of presence where I'm sitting there saying, God, I don't want to be anywhere else doing anything else but what's taking place right now, right here. It's that perfect peace that passes understanding. Why? Because it's the peace that comes when your soul is abiding in His presence. So that when people say to me, why do you believe that the Bible is the Word of God? Why do you believe it's truth? You know, we could sit down and have all sorts of discussions, and if you want to pull them offline, I mean, there's tons of them I've done on, on why we can trust the Bible and how the Bible is transmitted and blah, 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 blah. I mean, all that data and information and proofs there. But in the end of the day, that's not why I believe this is God's Word. That's not why I read it every day. I believe it's God's Word because I've experienced it in my life and what it does.
You experience it in your own heart. It's transformational in its impact. It alters everything. And you sit back and say, every time I've listened to it and responded to it and I've applied it in my life, it's proved to be true. It proved to be good. It proves to produce fruit 60, 100, maybe even a thousandfold in your life because you let it speak into your life. Will it make you rich and famous? Probably not. But also, you won't care because you've taken, partaken of riches and you've experienced a different kind of fame where your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And your, everything you do from that moment forward is going to be recorded and registered to redound to your joy and your glory and your reward when you're standing before His presence. Many thousands of people died to make sure that you and I had this. And they didn't do it because they were extra noble or they didn't have anything else to do. They did because they knew it was true. It was the Word of God, the Word of life. They knew its transformational power. And one of the great tragedies of our age is we live in a culture which has never had more access to it and place less value upon it in reality. We give it lip service, but we really don't commit ourselves to knowing what it says. And not just reading it, but taking it at face value. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would stir within each of us, because I understand, God, that the things that I say, no matter how energetic or passionate or simple or profound they may be expressed in the end of the day Lord it really comes down to whether or not your Holy Spirit speaks to us and and motivates us that Father I pray that you would create in each and every one of us a hungering and a thirsting after righteousness a hunger that would drive us to, to read your word to listen to it, to know it that would move us not only to hear it, but also to ruminate on it, to chew on it, and to allow it to express itself in in active form in our lives. When we're called to forgive, Lord, we forgive. When we're called to love, we respond by loving. Lord, when we're called to make sacrifices of ourselves for others, to lay our lives down, to proclaim your truth, to honor you, whatever it is, God, that we become people who learn the value of being obedient and responding because your ways are the way of life. Your way is the way of true abundance and fulfillment. Create that resolve, that desire, that hunger in us, I pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close, we invite you to partake from the elements of communion and I would simply point out the obvious that the reason we do this is because God's Word instructs us to do this. As often as we have the opportunity, He said that we're to break bread, we're to drink the poured out wine, because it's really symbolic, if you will, of our commitment to Jesus Christ, our commitment to what He declared about Himself. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my Word will never pass away. 
And so it is that we find ourselves 2,000 years later worshiping and responding to God because of the things that God said to us through his word, especially what he said to us through his son Jesus. And so I really ask you to, as we continue in a short time of worship, that you would just pray that God would begin to strengthen that devotion, that commitment in your own life to being students of his word, not in an academic sense, but Lord, that we, that we would desire the Lord's word more than we would desire our necessary food. That before we ever get up in the morning and stick food in our mouth, we would make sure that we have the word of God in our heart. You can drink coffee, that helps. But at the end of the day, you say, well, no rules, no regulations, no legalisms. We're not even talking about that. Nobody says you have, you know, there's no law that says you have to eat breakfast tomorrow morning, except in my house. But anyway, but you, there's no law. But why do we do things like that? Why do we have lunch? Why do we have dinner? Because we understand it's, it's survival. This is survival. Because one of the things that Paul warned, he said in the last days, that people will no longer be willing to listen to this. That's what's going to happen. That's what's happening. 